I'm Drew Bedard, and this is Marketing That Works, a podcast about the tools, tips, and tactics that business owners and marketers need to wow their customers and grow their profits. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Marketing That Works podcast. Thanks again for listening. Uh, If you'll share this episode with one person today, that would mean the world to me. I hope you get a lot of value out of this. This is a special episode this week. I uh, was fortunate enough to be on a panel of um, sports business people this week that was held by a guy, a friend of mine named David Millay, that is uh, the CEO of a company called Engagement. And Engagement Really what it is, is it is a, uh, a bunch of former Disney employees, Disney Institute employees that have gotten together and they help companies to create great guest experiences. So that's kind of what engagement and when it's engagement, M-I-N-T at the end. So if you want to go check them out, please do. But David uh, asked me to be on a panel of, and it was uh, three different organizations. I was representing Bristol Motor Speedway and Speedway Motorsports and uh, there was a gentleman, Caesar, from Orlando City in Orlando, the soccer team. Um, that's also uh, the the women's soccer team play at the stadium there. And then uh, the associate athletic director, Josh, from uh, from the University of Georgia. And really, what the topic was was it a, it was about opening up sports stadiums um, in the COVID area uh, in the COVID era, excuse me, and you know what we were doing. Um, And really what I was reporting on was just more of, you know, kind of what we went through um, in July and September, but really I I was probably more uh, reporting on behalf of, you know, some of the information that I, that I gained from all of my colleagues. And it was definitely a huge team effort um, to get all of these events up and running uh, for NASCAR, but specifically for Speedway Motorsports. But it was great to hear Caesar and to hear Josh talk about um, a football stadium, a soccer stadium, and and kind of what they went through. But there's a lot of great marketing lessons in here too about communication, about preparation. Um, there's just a lot of really good stuff in here. So I hope you enjoy it. And um, actually, I'm going to have David on on the podcast coming up here soon. So I think he would be a great person to come on and talk about guest experience and talk about the investment that everybody in the marketing field needs to make in that. So I hope you enjoy it. And I'll see you next time. All right, everybody, welcome. Uh, I don't know, I was going to say like, welcome back to an episode of Flip the Switch, our podcast or something. But um, for those of you that have no idea who the hell I am, uh, David Malay, uh, I run a company called Engagement with a few other former Disney execs. And we just want to thank you guys so much for coming out to really the first one of these that we've done with this amount of people. Um, so really excited to have all of you here. Uh, and hopefully we can bring some value to you guys today. Um, we really saw a bunch of webinars that were out there all around opening your venue and you look at who's speaking and it's vendors. And at the end of the day, the people that really know what you need to know for reopening your venue are people that have done it before and gone through it. So that's why we brought on 
Josh, Caesar, and Drew uh, to talk to you guys about what they've learned, lessons, tips, tricks, new pieces of technology that they've used, whatever it may be. Um, so last bit on engagement before we get started and we introduce everybody. Uh, we help organizations improve their customer experience and employee experience. And a big part of that has been helping organizations open their stadiums back up. Uh, now, as we get back into it, it's like, how do we actually make some type of experience good for customers? not only at, during game day, but 365. Um, so once again, appreciate you guys coming out. Uh, and without further ado, let's turn it over to our guest speakers and let them go ahead and introduce themselves. Josh, why don't we start with you? Hello, my name is Josh Brooks. I'm the Senior Deputy AD here at the University of Georgia. And I work closely with our facilities and management team. And so obviously during this COVID time, it's been uh, heavily focused on how do we reopen venues and get fans back in the stands. Perfect. And Josh, how many games and, and whatnot have you had? Oh, sorry. We have had, we're going to have our fourth home football game this weekend. Obviously we have the, our fifth one was a neutral site in Jacksonville. So our fourth home game this weekend, and we're at about 18,000 people capacity in a normally 92,000 plus uh, seat venue. 18,000 is still a huge number though, no matter how big the venue is. Um, Caesar, why don't we go to you next? Hi guys, I'm Cesar Lopez. I'm the Chief Administrative Officer and General Counsel over at Orlando City Soccer Club and the Orlando Pride of, uh, uh, respectively, of uh, MLS and NWSL. So uh, I generally oversee the administrative side of our business. I also have a little bit of the legal and HR component. So for our venue, uh, we we operate a 25,000 uh, seat stadium in in downtown Orlando, and we've hosted approximately 10 games i think at 10 games with our last playoff game and uh and, and actually a concert as well and and one youth clinic as well so i didn't know that and now i'm curious to hear more about it uh how many people average for your for your home games have you guys had uh so generally we're operating at around 25 percent capacity so roughly between four thousand to six thousand folks in our venue perfect um last but not least let's go to you drew you probably had the biggest crowds of everybody um, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, some of the events you guys have had. Sure. I'm Drew Bedard. I'm the Vice President of Marketing at Bristol Motor Speedway for Speedway Motorsports. And um, yeah, so we had, we were uh, the gifted, I guess is the best word, the all-star race, the NASCAR all-star race in July. Um, so that was one of the first major events in the country to have fans. So we had that in July and then we also had our major NASCAR weekend in September as well. And we had about 25, 30,000 people at each one of those uh, socially distanced and uh, wearing masks and everything else. But yeah, that's uh, that's been our year. And actually the fun fact for us is that we are currently running an event called Speedway and Lights, which is a fully car driven light show for Christmas that's run for about six weeks. So we have somewhere between 500 and 1,000 cars come through a night. So that's what's going on currently. Incredible. I can't wait to hear how you guys have all approached it. Um, now, if you're if you're joining us online, we see you guys in there. A couple things to know about the setup for today. So on your far right, you're going to see a little bar that says, say something nice. You don't have to say something nice. You can heckle our guys if you want or heckle me. Uh, that's totally okay here. Uh, but feel free to drop in uh, what organization you're with. That way, uh, Drew, Caesar, Josh all have some context as to the unique situations that you guys have. Um, that'll help us. Um, feel free to interact with each other in that space as well. 
Um, also on the bottom there, you're going to see ask a question. Um, so if you've got questions for our speakers, a lot of you already asked questions when you registered and we've preloaded some of those questions in. And we're actually going to start with a question from the crowd. Uh, but feel free to ask your own specific questions from your own venues here. Um, and at some point, we might do a poll or two as we go through. So feel free to, free to interact um, as we go throughout the session today. Um, all right, let's get started. So first question to the group. Uh, this comes from the audience. Uh, first question is, what what has been the attitude of your fans upon returning? I know there's a lot of emotion anytime that we have a sporting event, but definitely more so now in the height of the pandemic. Um, Josh, why don't we kick it to you first? Uh, what has been the attitude of the fans coming back? Thanks, David. You know, the attitude has actually been really great. I think before that first event, we were a little nervous about how everyone would feel with limited capacity and the new regulations, but it's been really amazing. And we had one experience similar to this when we hosted a concert seven years ago where people came in and they were in a great mood and excited. It was kind of like that. So everyone's been really positive. It was even funny because we had all these regulations where the students could sit, where they couldn't sit, and they were so well-behaved and listened and were agreeable and were doing it. I almost had to, I stopped one of them and said, why are y'all being so nice? You're the nicest 18 to 20 year olds I've ever been around in my life. And they said, sir, we're just so happy to be here. We're just so happy. So it's been remarkable how excited people are just to be back and experiencing something live and in person that it's been unbelievable. Did you have the normal amount of students that would you would normally have in your student section or did you guys cut that by 25% as well? We cut it to match the overall percentage that we had in the rest of the stadium. And we caught a little flack after the first game because it was we had a social distance plan, but all it took was one camera shot in the student section after a touchdown where they gathered around and you know, one quick shot became the narrative. And we had a lot of pictures. I'm sure some people have seen as well, but I had all these pictures showing you from different angles how it was well spaced, but all it takes is one camera shot to ruin, you know the perception of what the student section was. But so it was around 3,000 students that normally take up 16,000 seats. So it, it was plenty of room and spread out. Perfect. Um, and now there's actually a, in the questions, again, somebody had a question about that, about changes around optics versus for actual safety. And we'll get to that. But if you look in the questions, you can actually upvote the questions that you like. And the more you guys upvote a question, it'll make sure that we ask it to the audience because I know there's a lot of questions. We probably won't get to all of them. Um, Caesar, let, let's talk about your group. Obviously, MLS has supporters that are rabid and known for having you know smoke bombs and the drums and no shirts on and whatnot. How did you guys deal with the attitudes of the fan? What was that when they were coming to the games? So, so for us, it was a little bit, I'll take a step back a little bit and talk about, you know, how we ended up here, right? We were one of the first venues to come back uh, to, to open up in MLS and, and really, uh, you know, I think there's this natural anxiety that happens with not only the fans, but also uh, us as operators. And, and so we really took a, a, a strategic focus on, on making sure we were focused on the safety elements, but then we were focused on educating um, our fans. So that that was for us almost number one in our book. That way, when when we can deal with the question, which is the attitudes of the fans, we felt as though uh, they understood uh, and they were aligned with what we were trying to do and what we were trying to protect. And they understood that this was a privilege for everybody. So I think when we had a really, really positive experience with our fans coming into the venue, almost, almost, you know, <laughs> to Josh's point, it was a little bit like jarring, like, wait a second, I think 
you have fans helping enforce the rule, right? <laughs> Going to other fans and saying, hey, put on your mask because we all want to be here for this match, right? So I think that that was really, really important. But we spent several weeks putting to putting together a comprehensive plan around uh, safety and education about what it means to be in a venue. And that really, I think, yielded good results for us because uh, it, it, it made it easier as we started to have more and more matches uh, and events in our venue um, to that the culture of being in the, in the stadium started to, 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 to sort of set itself. And, uh, and that was a really, really positive uh, sign for us. I'm going to, I'm going to keep, Oh, go ahead, Drew. Well, I was going to say, I agree with Caesar wholeheartedly that, and I, this is probably going to be one of the biggest points that everybody's going to take away, which is the pre-event in information and education for fans is that the event experience is made so much better and you have more positive fans if they are prepared. Like one thing in particular, I'll give you guys an example was um, at most NASCAR tracks, um, like Bristol Motor Speedway, coolers are still accepted. But we went in just a four-week span, we went from coolers to clear bags. Now, most football stadiums and other places have clear bags. That's kind of the, the policy, and that's for, you know, uh, ancillary items and things like that. But we hammered that point home with fans. We said, we're moving from coolers to clear bags. And actually, we just saw the adoption go up, a lot of questions around it. What can I bring in? We, you know. And I, and I think that we had a more pleasant fan base when they got there and they were fine with the switch because we prepped them in advance. So I know that's probably going to be a big point today, but that was huge going into the event. Yeah. And, and so to build on that, right, I know one of the tactics for education, Drew, that you guys used was you, you kind of had like an open house that you let the press come in and, and do mm -hmm. their piece. Um, but talk to us a little bit about the attitudes of your of the fans from your end. Um, were they more rambunctious than usual, less rambunctious than usual and more respectful. How did your, the NASCAR group take it? Cause I think, I think, I think the mask issue got politicized as well. And again, with NASCAR fan base, talk to us about how that all played in. Well, I, I think it was a, we were pleasantly surprised at how people took to the masks and actually the point that these guys made, it was almost like the community was policing itself was to say, we want more of this. We want to go to more NASCAR tracks. Everybody wear a mask. But yeah, I mean, I can, I mean, you guys could understand that, that, that the, the NASCAR fan base probably wasn't psyched about wearing a mask and socially distancing because you're used to those big crowded stadiums. Um, but they were great with it and they, they couldn't have been better. And we love our fans just like everybody does. We love our fans at Bristol, but they were so great. I remember one of the stories, Logan McCabe, um, who works on our staff, uh, he would walk the concourse and ask people to put on their masks. And everybody was so friendly about it because they, again, advanced education, information, they knew it was coming, but they were also like, we get it. We, we got it. We'll, we'll go along with this because we want to be at these big sporting events. It seemed like uh, everybody there knew that with great power comes great responsibility. They didn't want to blow it. Um, well, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, Let's go to a, a bigger, broader question. What's one thing you guys know now that you wish you would have known before opening your venue? Ooh. I'd say the first thing for me is never trust a seating map on, on print <laughs> versus in reality. T tell us more about that. So when our team was working on the, the plan of how do we social distance the seat and the pods and from each other, 
we didn't do enough time actually checking each section versus the map. And we spent so much time on the front end laying it out on paper and getting it just right on paper that we should have went in and checked. Because there's some sections that are mirror copycats of others that we could have done a lot more to say, okay, this section looks this way on paper, but that aisle, the way it configures, mm. that seat is not where it is, looks like on the map. So you did all this mapping and the spacing according to where it looks like on the map. When you get in reality, the way the tunnel lines up, seat 13 is not behind seat 13 on this row. It's So it can throw off. So you had to spend a little bit of time going in and correcting it where you wish to have a better understanding of uh, in terms of social distancing with a seat map, what it looks like on paper, what it is in reality. Make, makes a ton of sense. I feel like a lot of people that are in this chat are probably saying, okay, I, I, that's a definite note that we got to take back. And not to um, call anyone out, but you can see it in some venues when you see, if you ever look at some stadiums and you see it laid out and you say, well, that doesn't make sense. Why is that? It's probably because when it was on paper, they looked like they were this, but on reality, you know, they're stacked or different stuff. And realistically, how often are you updating those maps on paper, right? So, yeah. Caesar, uh, how about you? You know, it, for me, it's less about the what I would have known, and I think it was just more about certain things that were highlighted throughout the process, right? And I feel like when when we were going through this planning process, we recognized the need for, and I think we did a really good job of this, but I just want to highlight this for the group, is, is, is the need for empathy, right? And we're dealing with a lot of different people and a lot of different stakeholders and a lot of different uh, emotions. And so, you know, first and foremost, and I, I have HR responsibilities here at the club, so I'll talk about our people, right? And, uh, and, and making sure that they were aligned and a part of the process. So we spent, Actually, uh, we started uh, coming back to the office about four and a half, maybe six weeks um, before our first match at the venue. Um, and, and I think part of that was making sure that you know, us as, as, as employers and employees, we believed in the process before we actually had folks coming into our venue. So that was an important uh, touch point for us to say like, okay, our people have to know and understand this inside and out. So let's give them weeks to get used to that, that cycle. And then we can start to invite folks into our home. And then that, that confidence that, that, uh, that, that our folks have will, will, uh, will we'll exude and, and, and folks that are coming out of the coming into the venue will actually feel like, okay, they know what they're doing and they know um, that this is a safe, safe environment. It makes a ton of sense. Yeah. You definitely got to believe it on, on your own staff first. Um, Drew, how about you guys? What's one thing that you wish you would have known uh, prior to going into it? Um, and I don't want to beat a dead horse with, with the information part, but I think empowering fans that, the more information that we gave them up front, again, that also spread to other fans because, you know, like we all have at these stadiums, fans are obviously coming from outside to in and they've got, so whether it's signage, but it's also about communities of fans that are educating each other. So, and I, I think that that was one. The other one was, I, I think there was a nervousness around opening and there was a nervousness around having fans back but that really at the end of the day, it's about fun. So I think, I think, I think even I, and, and I do the operations for our Jumbotron as well, is that we were so, we had everything sketched out, you know, on the plan and that was so necessary, but really people just wanted to have fun. So when you're reopening, make sure that you have all of your, you know, all of your procedures very tight, but also understand that people are just excited to get out and have a good time. So just to do that in the safest way possible. 
Beautiful. To Drew's right, point, on that, yeah, yeah, I was just gonna say to Drew's point on that, you know, and and we have a a, a very a much smaller venue than both Drew and Josh, but but what I would say is, you know, us having four or five, six thousand people in the in the venue really felt like 12, 15,000 people because you're just so not used to being around a lot of, of other individuals in, a, in, a, in that kind of um, space. And so uh, it really it generated a lot of energy and it was, a, it was a lot of fun for a lot of folks. And I think that's a really, really good point, Drew. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna hook onto that and go off script a little bit. I know I, I had a couple of questions outlined for you guys ahead of time, but Caesar, you guys are just coming out of a playoff run, and you guys in their, your opening playoff match had one of the most exciting finishes I've ever seen in a sporting event. Um, if you haven't seen it, everybody listening, a field player had to play goalie and saved a penalty kick. It was ridiculous. And so, how did how did you guys balance that? I mean, at, at that point in the game. Not that you didn't care about safety, but there had what was what was going through your mind as an executive saying people probably aren't social distancing as they're jumping up and hugging and kissing right now and running through. What was going through your head as an exec watching that that environment get lifted like that? So I, I, I'll really give credit to my team here and and uh, and the folks running a lot of the operations because and I'll, there's a little bit of history here. So last year we had an open cup match where uh, we went into the penalty kicks. And um, so for those that don't know our venue on one side of it's almost like a student section, right? So it's all the supporters, it's the chanting, it's the drums. Um, <clears throat> the opposing team decided they wanted to take the penalty kicks away from the, the wall. Uh, at that point, the wall decided they were a movable object and decided to <laughs> run and it's literally, you can find the videos, it's called the running of the wall, uh, run to the opposite side of the stadium, fill up the other side of the stadium, and we ended up winning those um, those penalty kicks. So really exciting, memorable moment for our organization. Also a little, for the professional warrior of the organization, a little bit challenging. But what I would say is when, when we went into the penalty kicks uh, for, uh, for, for, this, for this last playoff match, um, it, it was very clear and you could hear our fans knew it. Like we made an announcement, please stay in your seats. No matter what side the, the venue we're going to have the penalty kicks on, you have to stay put. But what we did learn is that our folks understood that. And it goes back to the education piece. It goes back to the buy-in that they had. They said, look, as much as we might want to run over to that side, we're going to stay where we need to be. And it ended up being in front of them anyway. So uh, it worked out all for the best. But I, I think to your point, it was a little bit of, of, of nervousness around how fans can react. But I think we have had now 10 games in our venue. So we knew that our fans also knew what to do in that scenario. Fair enough. Um, well, let's go to a question from the audience here. Uh, we're going to mix these in. Uh, so how are brands activating experientially with fans in person at newly opened venues? Uh, so that's a question that came. I don't know who wants to take that one first. It's kind of around make goods almost. Uh, yeah. Because I don't know that there is a lot of experiential. but And it's more difficult now than ever because some of the things that we'd had where people were, we were, a big focus on our campus was eliminating gatherings or any congregation aspects. So that eliminates a lot of your activation opportunities. So sometimes you got to think outside the box a little bit and think, okay, what, what's going to be different about this year? Okay, we're going to have hundreds and hundreds of hand sanitizers throughout the venue. We know you're going to get eyeballs on those. So there's an opportunity where 
we bought some hand sanitizer stations that have a little area where we could slip in a sponsor or something like that. So really thinking outside the box because you know that you've just lost a lot of your normal uh, situations where you could set up a, you know, some kind of interactive with a sponsor. So really got to think differently than ever before in terms of how to activate with, with brands and sponsors. How about Drew Caesar, you guys? Um, on our side, I think it was just leaning into digital more. So we just took a lot of those opportunities. We made, you know, a digital program for the event. The app was more robust. Um, we used email and social a lot more just to deliver. I was going to say deliver on the deliverables. That would have sound, that sounds great. Um, but okay. So an example was somebody like Shady Rays. Shady Rays was a sponsor at multiple Speedway Motorsports tracks, but at Kentucky and at Bristol. And really, we just amped up their presence in our digital space. We did like an AR. So with our fan cam, we had like an overlay in the fan cam. But we also had just multiple posts for them because really what they're trying to deliver on is get people back to the website and use a code to to buy a pair of sunglasses. So I just, yeah, leaning into digital was was the big thing for us. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll echo that. I, I think it also is partner dependent. We have a very, you know, a wide ranging uh, categories of partners and some can and willingly took advantage of the fact that they did not have to, to go out and activate on, uh, you know, in front of our stadium. But we, we like the others have, have eliminated our, um, our, our fan zone, if you will. Uh, and in terms of trying to get rid of, of any sort of social gathering outside of the venue. Um, so, so for us, it was, it was definitely leaning into the digital space. I think it's something that we've noticed that a lot of our fans tend to tend to do. And, and we noticed an uptick during our MLS's back tournament that there were a lot of folks that were streaming our matches. Right. And so that was a good insight for us, but you know, technology has obviously been really, really helpful for us in engaging um, with our fans and whether, you know, it's, you know, we've done zoom uh, meetings with our fans, with our coaches, with our, with our uh, staff and our CEO as well. So they've all been well received. And, and so we really could try to layer those things into that. Can I, David, can yeah, I give sure. a more example? So one more example for us was say, um, so then partnership activation. So not just interactives, but partnership activations was victory lane. So one of the things that we did was we just, we basically had a, an elaborate Zoom setup of a big screen TV and a camera in Victory Lane. And when the driver won at each one of our tracks, they would go over and what you would have is you would have a select group in the suite from say Food City or Bass Pro Shops. And they would be Zooming with the driver in Victory Lane. So you're still getting the FaceTime with the driver who just won your event, but it was all done digitally and it was done from you know, 300 feet away. Um, but then more people in the suite. So some of the customers and, and some of those things, some of those people got to see the driver and, and ask them questions, you know, more close up. So it was, it was an interesting way to, uh, to pivot on that yeah, experience. I, I think there's going to be a lot of digital things that come out here and have been coming out that allow you to actually interact more than with just the people that might have been in the venue or might have had access to one person. Um, yeah, there are all sorts of cool tools that are like that. If, if you're if you're repping a, a, one of those tools and you're here, put it in the chat. Feel free. Um, but yeah, one of my favorites I know that has they've done really well over the last six months is uh, my buddy Nick Lawson's company Squad. If any of you guys are familiar with them, um, but anyway, 
All right. Um, let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit. What's something that you guys thought would work, but you've since scrapped or changed? This is a really simple, simple, stupid one that we scrapped early on was we were heavy into thinking of every single thing that you can do for social distancing. Right. And it, we got into the weeds as far as eliminating every other urinal because of spacing. You initially were eliminating we were every, other eliminate every other yeah. urinal, but once you think about it in practice, in reality, you you much rather get people in and out, right? You the last thing you want is a line of 10, 12 people outside the restroom, within trying to keep them six feet apart when you have narrow concourses. I'd much rather get people in and out of restroom. Any man can testify that they get in and out of those urinals very quickly, <laughs> so it, it just wasn't worth it. So trying to block that off just in practice, it's you know, in theory versus practice, right? So I know it's a simple, simple thing, but there's so many, it's a metaphor for so many things in the COVID world where you think it looks good on paper, but in reality, that's not going to work, you know? That's a great answer. I'm looking for more of that, guys. Stuff that like sounded good in theory. It sounded good when we mapped it out on paper, but then when you got into it, 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 that's not how it played out. You want to hear more about urinals? Is that, is that what you're saying? <laughs> I always right. want to hear more about urinals. Right. Okay, all right. I've got a lot yeah. of urinal stories. Just let me <laughs> Well, for, ahead, for, for us, I thought, um, you know, and this was, this goes back to, to running through uh, our testing of our own protocols uh, was parking. Right. And uh, initially we had started out with this socially distanced parking and realized quickly, like that didn't make a ton of sense. Uh, not only and, and our parking is limited in our venue anyway, but it just it, it wouldn't have made a ton of sense to try to execute that. Um, the, the likelihood and the, the, the we, we consulted with our our health our uh, our health partners as well and they were like look you know the, the, the you're not congregating in the parking lot right but if you're parking getting in and out it shouldn't be an issue so that was one for us good stuff drew how about you guys um, yeah a quick one for us was um, one of the things we learned on one of the first nights that we opened was you know, natural human behavior is going to take over at some point. And I know we've already talked about this, about kind of the groups. If you have some spontaneous celebration that happens, well, um, Chase Elliott won the all-star race and he's the most popular driver in NASCAR. And a lot of the, a lot of the people on the front stretch approached the fence and it kind of got congregated. So the next time, and, and there was, we did our best at, at that time, but then the next time we, it wasn't like we tried to take that element out altogether, but I guess we kind of blocked that area so that people kind of naturally had to stay in their seats and they couldn't rush the fence. And that kept everybody a little bit more socially distant, even when they were celebrating with whatever driver just won and doing a burnout on the front stretch. So I would say it's more just tweaking as we went along that, you know, oh, we thought you know, if we just tell people not to approach the fence, they won't do it. Well, no, you know, that just that instinct to celebrate took over. So right. the next time we just had to set up some barriers and then we saw that they actually did stay closer to their seats. Interesting. Yeah, I think there's definitely a degree of having to put yourself in the shoes of the consumer at the time and what emotions are they going to go through through the course of the game and what do they do when they have those emotions? Um, Caesar, one, one more note on this question. I know you guys initially, like everybody else, we mapped out the stadiums based on real estate. How can we get the most amount of seats available while still being at 25% or socially distant? But you guys changed up 
after the first couple of games, seeing what what was selling and versus what wasn't. I think you guys initially had six seats and pods of six, pods of eight, and eventually you guys just went down to pods of two. Is is that right? And can you talk to that at all? Well, I, I, I'm I'm probably not the best person to discuss like the demand, but I can tell you from a high level perspective yeah. that. You know, we saw we tried to accommodate to what our fans were trying to do. Right. What we did initially was was, I would say, simpler for us with those pod models. Right. But um, what we quickly realized is that folks want to come to the venue with their significant other or they want to come to the venue with a group of friends that they have uh, been hopefully living with. But so we we had to uh, sort of accommodate over a period of time and say, like, hey, these are the we started we started uh, delivering to demand basically and uh, and we saw we were it was a lot of more work for our ticketing operations group to try to figure out where and how to place those groups in order to keep the social distancing but it, it ended up being a much better experience for our fans. Got it. And so that was just you guys looking at the ticket data, understanding what was actually getting bought and switching it based on that. It's yeah. not like you guys did focus groups or anything like that. We've done a lot of, of surveys over the course of COVID and, and, and that helped with our insights, right? So we knew that there was a demand. We knew that there was a, a, a different type of demand than what we had originally set out for. So that was a really, really important piece of our of our puzzle. Got it. All right. Let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, what's a new technology or tool that's helped you guys open your venues with fans? Feel, feel free to give company shout outs or whatever it might be. Cause I think as people that are listening, they're saying, give me what I can get to, to help me open my venue. I think for us, one of the things and we've been talking about this for a while was we switched or we implemented some pedestal scanners. Um, so we put out 20 of those. We didn't, uh, the funding wasn't there to do it throughout the entire venue. And we wanted to kind of have a trial run with it as well, but been very impressed with the pedestal scanners because the patron can walk up, not have to get too close to a ticket taker, scan their own ticket. You know, because when a ticket taker scans your ticket, normally sometimes they even grab your ticket and scan it or get close to you. Where this is somewhere the, the, the scanner can stand back, you know, a couple feet. All they're looking for is a green light, scan, good, go. And they've worked really well. They actually, the device actually shields the, the scanner from the sun. Because sometimes when you're scanning it in the sun, as we all know, it can get a little tricky. So that's been one piece of technology that's been um, – a positive, really positive for us. I'm glad we were able to uh, add that in. Beautiful. I thought I thought you were going to say our employee checked in, uh, checked in stuff that, that we worked on, but we we can we, we can, can de- definitely. Well, I got to give Christy Perks and Matt Bukowski the credit for that. They've been more involved in that. But, but you can speak to that a little bit, David. We've worked with David's group on um, employee check in for us has been great. Been able to put them all through one central location, one spot where they check in, do all the the, the temperature check, everything knowing that everybody that works, every third-party member, because before when you come to Sanford Stadium, whether you were the plumber, the janitor, whatever your role was, people were entering through different parts of the venue where we couldn't do that now because we all need to come to one spot, check in, make sure they've been tested, where his group helped us have a check-in. We were able to send out communication uh, on here's expectations, here's what you need to do, and really communicate to that group and centralize it. It's been um, it's been really great. So. I'll, I'll elaborate on it. So it's, if, if you're interested in learning more, drop Travis or Heather a note in the chat. Um, but basically, you send out a note to all your employees ahead of time via text message and they get a QR code. They show up at the venue, show their QR code. 
and they can only get in no matter whether they work for a third party or whatever. And now you've got all that data from a contact tracing perspective, et cetera. So, you know, even the guy that's just working that one game, you know, what company he or she is with. Um, and I'll so say one more thing, ahead. David, even post COVID, it's something I think that would make sense for us just for having that accountability because normally we would issue passes out throughout the week. Well, let's say we issue a pass out to HVAC contractor and we issue them three or four. Sometimes you don't know if they pass it on to someone else. So this is great accountability for that and being able to know and check in. So it just adds another layer of security for, for third party. Had to drop that one plug. Um, all right, Caesar, Drew, uh, for you guys, a tool or technology that's helped you open your venue better? So I'll, I'll tackle this question a little bit differently. And I think uh, for us, we didn't invest heavily into new technology uh, in terms of our operation. What we we really did focus on was our existing relationships. So one of our, our, our Jersey partner and one of our, our, our biggest partners is Orlando Health, right? And so they are a hospital system here in Orlando that that is the, of the highest quality. And they had their own infectious disease um, uh, groups. We worked with uh, the city of Orlando, Orange County as well, and their infectious disease experts. And we really f- like helped craft the plan. Right. And, and they were really, really intimately involved in that piece that helped with the buy in initially to open up our venue, but also for us to just make sure that we had um, uh, almost like somebody behind you saying, yes, that this is a this is a this is a good plan and I'm an expert in this space. And so from us, that was the that was the investment that I think we made early on and in integrating them into part of into our process, which which yielded positive results at the end, right? So we, we well, while there is technology that we did invest in, such as the 15 minute um, testing protocols for our staffing that is coming in on game days, that's helpful. But I think more importantly, we knew that what the process that we had implemented ahead of time was, was really um, at, at the time, the best, the best that was available. Yeah, on that note, I mean, like, and Josh and Drew, you guys feel free to chime in here on this one. I was surprised to see so many organizations that had health partners that didn't go lean into that relationship. Instead, they relied on a the physical trainer to kind of set the set the pace. Um, I, I don't know what y'all's perspective with that was, if you had a health partner already on board, if you did the same thing as Caesar did, or if you guys more stuck to the team side of things. We have a great relationship with uh, the local group here in the state, Piedmont, who is our official healthcare provider, and our head sport, head of sports medicine, Ron Corson, has a great relationship with them. So there was a natural relationship there with them that that overlaps so many different ways. And good, um, good. I can't imagine we made it through with just the advisement on what to do from staff to student athletes to fans, uh, leaning on them was huge navigating cool. these times. Drew, so you got two questions then, health yeah. partner and then tool of technology. Yeah, uh, same. Uh, We have a great partner in Ballad Health, which is in Northeast Tennessee and Southwest Virginia. Um, That was with us every step of the way. And they are a partner at the Speedway, but they also advised us along the way. So, yeah, very similar there. Um, Tooler Technology, I'll go over a few real quick. Uh, Fan360, who does our app and our CRM, uh, we had to kind of bulk up our app pretty quickly because it was also going to integrate I'll drop Ticketmaster in there. So we had to go from where we were going to be doing paper tickets to digital, all digital tickets in four weeks. So from our team in Charlotte to the Ticketmaster team to the to our in-house team at Bristol, 
Um, we had to ramp that up really quickly, which took all those players working together. Um, a project management and kind of operational software that we use is Basecamp, probably like a lot of people. That was extremely helpful because another thing was we were taking a lot of the internal jobs and spreading them out across the company. We work as one big company at all eight tracks of Speedway Motorsports. So Basecamp really helped us do that. And then the last one is an experiential one. Um, we did a big light show at the All-Star Race right before the green flag, uh, a tool called Q Audio. They're out of Nashville. So it was where an audio cue comes out from the audio system. And you guys have probably seen these things on social and, you know, TikTok and other things like that of like the highlights of these things from the Superdome to other places. But we tried it at the All-Star Race. We did it last year one time and it was awesome and people loved it. So, you know, kind of getting people to get their phones out an audio cue goes out and we matched it up with a song and all the lights on the phones went off and that was really fun. So from an experiential end, that was really cool too. And, and it's one of those things that is not dependent on having a completely full stadium from the sounds of it. Act, yeah. Funny enough, it, it wasn't. Cause again, we had 25 or 30,000 people just spread out in the yeah. entire stadium, but it still provided a really cool light show that night. Um, and it was the perfect time because it, the the All Star Race started at about nine p.m. So in the summertime, we we were we had gotten past um, or we'd gotten into darkness at that point. So it did look great in the stadium, and it, it's a lot of fun for people too. Um, we had some trivia games that went along with Q Audio as well, which was really neat. Q Audio is the name of the company, then, right? Yeah, Q Audio C U E. Perfect. Um, all right, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, one of the questions from the audience that keeps getting upvoted here is, how did you select the fans that got to attend? Uh, obviously, with only 25%, having worked with a bunch, of, a bunch of teams going through this, I know this was one of the most contentious, headache-giving things. Um, who wants to start with this one? How much time do we have? Do we have a couple hours? <laughs> <laughs> Mine's pretty easy, so I'll go quickly. Let's go. You go first, Ours was first come, first serve. So, um, yeah, I mean, we alerted our fans, and then we obviously had to serve fans with credit that may have missed an earlier NASCAR race. But otherwise, it was um, coming by them. So, um, Did you get a lot of blowback from that, from people that were like, ah, my, my trigger finger wasn't fast enough, my email, my internet was down, or you guys didn't get much? In no, I feel like we were able to serve every customer that, that wanted a ticket to those experiences. So That's great. That's it for us. I probably have the next easiest one, which might surprise you, Dave. It's just, you know, for us, it was going season ticket member first, right? So um, we have a pretty healthy season ticket member base. So, you know, for them to opt out, first of all, would have been important for us to figure out how many, you know, season ticket, or I'm sorry, tickets that we, single game tickets that we could have sold in that, in that same amount of time. But as we had our most successful season, a uh, little plug there, uh, but we, as we had our most successful season, we noticed that the demand uh, for single game tickets went down each game because more and more of the season ticket members were coming in and watching the game. So it's pretty easy for us. Okay. How, when you first put out the offer, what percentage of the season ticket base opted in versus opted no, out? I'm not, sure. I'm not sure that exact number, but it was not as high as it was at the end. I'll tell you that. Okay. It, for us, it, you know, it was a gradual process, but we partly uh, look at that and say, 
you know, part of it was trust, right? And making sure some folks were, didn't have the trigger finger because they were worried about the health concerns, not necessarily that they, they didn't want to go to the game. But once they saw, okay, they've had a couple of games, there hasn't been any issues. This is, this is a place I can be safe at, I'm gonna go. Um, and also as the games became more and more um, important that, that they decided to opt in. Yeah, and I think for anybody trying to guess that too, it this is one of those things that changes by the day. Like with how what the pandemic numbers are, and you know what season it is. Is it an outdoor venue? It's all so many factors are going to come into play on that. Um, Josh, but one thing. Ahead, I'm first. sorry, Josh. I just wanted to jump in back to. I, I probably did make it sound simpler than it was, but there was a lot of work on the back end to really go out to people. So we talked about research a little bit, and we may talk about it more. But we definitely went out to our fan base and said, who's comfortable with coming to the event? So that was a qualifier before we necessarily uh, assign the seats. So sorry to jump in, Josh. You good. All right, Josh, the hard one. You, you guys have so many different types of fans. We have so many different groups. That's where it starts. But the first question was, how many people can we get in, right? So we knew it was 20% capacity. No matter how you laid it out, all the different ways we did it, we knew 20% was the capacity. So – the first thing was keep everyone's footprint the same, right? So the student section stays the same, and then you work with their number. But each group was awarded a little differently. So the, like we said, we went out to – we had 45,000-plus season ticket holders for 12,000 donor seats per game. Four home games, doing all the math and coming up with it. Then you, like they said, email who's in, who's out. And then once you got to there, we had a, a matrix to look at and say, okay – our upper top 5% of donors would get all four games. The next 20% would get two to three games, and then everybody else would get one. So the, the premise was, the RAD, RAD, Greg McGarity laid out for us, was I want to make sure everybody gets to attend one game. Let's start with that baseline. and then. But you want to have a tiered system beyond that because you got to take care of your top donors who have been given a lot of money to give them an opportunity to attend more. So it was a sliding scale, and once we got the opt-ins back, um, we got a lot of opt-out, but we had a very fan-friendly opt-out message. It was, listen, it's a unique time, financially, COVID, et cetera. If you want to opt-out, that's fine. You won't lose your seats for next year, and you can get a full refund on your tickets and your donation. So it was very friendly. So we had about 50% opt-in, 50% opt-out. Then through that, we were able to award more fours, some threes, some twos, some ones. But everybody who opted in at least got one game. Um, now, the back end of that was we were afraid that um, by that many opt-out, what does that mean to our revenue? But we followed it up with a message of, listen, these are unique times. Anyone that wants to donate or let us keep their money, because they our donors and gave their money back in April and May, right? Right. For, and for and that's, that's a previous fiscal year for you guys. Yes. So that money's already counted. We were counting all that money moving forward. So we said to them, listen, if you keep the ticket – portion or the donation portion or both any dollar you leave in with us will convert to a donation and you'll get triple points where they normally get you know one point for one dollar because points don't really cost us anything convert it and you'll get triple points the psychology behind it being a lot of them it's sunk money money they've already spent mm -hmm. they can move ahead to point totals so with that and our development office has been working nonstop since september on converting that that money into donations we've been able to recoup a lot of the money that we'd have lost Otherwise, that would have just if we just issued straight refunds or let them roll it over. We were very say if we just offer them to roll it over, anyone who's not coming is going to roll it over, and we lose that money 
for next year. So it's important for us to quantify that in this year, give an option refund, keep it, and then we'll start again for next year. So I know that was a long-winded answer, but the, the credit the credit topic. Sorry, Josh, go ahead. No, no, no. Oh, go ahead. You go ahead. Sure. I was just going to say that the credit topic is a really important one, and I bet everybody who's on this is very interested in that. For us, if you did keep your money with Speedway Motorsports, we gave you 120% or a 20% above um, their dollar credit. So that was a way that we could say thank you for putting the money down in advance, and please stay with us because, of course, we are going to open in the future and come to future events. So I know that's probably – go ahead, guys. Sorry. No, I, I was just going to chime in and say I, I think that is a really important point in this is looking at the inventory and the the types of things that you have at your disposal that don't cost you hard dollars and how can you reallocate those to reward the people that have stayed loyal to you guys and and that's going to be key and find more of those things that you can do right and I would tell anyone get your key groups in a room development marketing ticketing business office everyone and fight it out I mean we had a a few weeks there in August and we didn't know what the schedule was going to be, right? We were going, is it going to be an eight game, 10 game, 12 game? We hashed it all out to where people were tired of talking about it, but we went through every positive and negative everything. And at the end of the day, we came up with a plan that everybody was a little upset with. I said, it's the best of, it's the best of a bad situation. And when we communicated properly, because we, we were all, when we hit that send button on the plan, we're like, all right, everybody brace yourself. But again, people were very positive because we thought out all the negatives and um, you're not going to have a solution that everyone's going to love. That's the art of the compromise. Right. But it, it yep. worked out to the best it could be. All right. We, we got a ton more questions here. Uh, so we're going to try to quick hit some of these guys and to everybody participating. Thank you. Keep asking questions. Um, we'll try to get to some of these afterwards in a follow up um, as well. But uh, let's let's pick a couple in here. Drew, Josh, Caesar, go through the questions and answers. And if there's any that you really want to hit on, um, let me know. But I'm going to throw one out. Uh, let's start with this one. How does your 2021 marketing plan look in terms of changes due to COVID-19? Caesar, you guys, the marketing plan is going to be all about it's the best team. It's the best team ever. You guys had a great year. Um, but yeah, how are you guys changing your marketing plan in lieu of like, there's just so much uncertainty right now. Who wants to take so that one first? Whoever uh, wants to take it first. I'll let Drew. I'd be, I'll, I'll sure. <laughs> um, I would say this, this year has had a ton of adversity and a ton of negatives and, um, some sadness wrapped into it, but there's also been some positives that have come out of it, which is some process things. Um, I would say that we've gotten a better process for budgeting, for marketing um, than we've ever had. And I think it's based on, you know, the marketing plan, it's, it's a little bit more of an equation. Um, obviously, there's the art and the science of it. There's the art on the creative side. And you obviously you want to put out the right message to the right group and you want to do all those things correctly. So there's that part of the process that might be similar to years past. But I would say the science part of it of how many tickets do we have to sell in maybe a COVID attendance? Um, how many tickets do we have to sell? How many have we allocated already? Um, okay, what's the number that's left over and what kind of budget do we actually need to bring awareness to those fans to try to get to a, a full, again, COVID sellout? Um, and again, that will be modified as, as we go forward into 2021 and 2022 as well. So um, I would say that on the marketing side, there's some things that have stayed the same, the art part of it, the creative, try to put great creative in front of the right, right people, the right message. 
But then there's the science part of it that I actually think has gotten better and more refined and smarter through this year. So that's my answer. That's great news. And guys, we can flip to another question if, it, if that's better too, because we got a ton left. Yeah. Um, let's do that. Uh, all right. Here's one. What's a future trend of in-venue experience that has your interest right now? I think for me, and it, this is a little sacrilegious to say, but it's going to be 10, 20 years from now, are we going to look at re reducing size of venues and focusing on the premium experience? Because um, the comment I keep getting is, oh, man, this is so nice. I've got leg room. I've got, I can walk around. The no lines of the restroom, concessions, parking, ingress, egress. Um, that you got to ask yourself an honest question for every venue, everybody who manages a venue. What is your tipping point of your venue to where – the experience goes from good to bad when you have too many people in. I think um, not to blame people who've, who've expanded facilities the last 20 or 30 years, but did you go past the tipping point? Do we need to look at reduction and focus on a better experience as opposed to how many can we cram in? I, I, think, a, I think that's a great point, Josh. And it's one that we haven't discussed internally, naturally, but it's, it's an observation that I think I've had as well is, uh, when I go and I walk through our premium spaces on our on our game day, uh, I get the sense that people are very happy with the space that's around them, right? And, and part of that is due to the reduction of of attendance, but I think they're going to become accustomed to that over a period of time, and that adds to their premium level experience. So it's a good observation, one that I'm not sure how we'll we'll, we'll deal with on, on the soccer side, and I don't think we're past that tipping point yet, but it just is an interesting observation on the premium. So that that's one I've gotten multiple emails from different execs at, at university saying, hey, our fans are just happier right now, so how do we balance the loss yeah. of revenue for reduction, but the increase in guest experience because people are happier because they got more space. How do we justify that? And so, you know, we've started doing some back of the napkin stuff and saying, can you charge more for your per caps and certain things? How do you make up that revenue? But Josh, anyway, I know you're about to say something. Well, the other thing, and this is not so much COVID related, but I've noticed it more in our premium areas is I have noticed the last five or six years, different sports, different universities, premium areas where people are at the venue they're not necessarily facing what's going on. There's TVs around. They've got a drink in their hand, looking at a screen. The games behind them or around them, but it's a social where they want to be able to move around, not sit still, have their phone out, check the TV. The game's there. So the game is just a part of it for some people now, and I know that's even crazy to say, um, but but being it's like the, 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 the game is just one of the screen. i got the screen here, the, the game here, and my phone, and it's just part of the social scene now, right? Yep. Um, all right, another rapid fire one. Uh, what changes do you think will be lasting changes in the venue versus temporary? I mean, if they are already touchless uh, transactions, I think that's it. I mean, it's probably the easiest one to, to identify for me, but uh, I think it just makes a smoother transaction. I think over a period of time, you have uh, folks that are less inclined to deal with uh, any sort of physical touching when they're when they're making a transaction. We now have a process with our Fanatics partner where they can buy stuff ahead of time. They just walk right through, pick it up, and walk right out. Right, and so I think that 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 touchless transaction is a is an interesting element that I think is here to stay. Hundred percent. I agree, and I, I'd actually combine the last two answers. So yeah, I had the same thing when I, when I prepped and looked at this question was cashless concessions, um, touchless elements, but also, you know, frictionless. So how much more technology can we add in 
Um, and just to make it so much more seamless around the stadium, I think Disney, and I know you come from a Disney background, David, is that you know, with the Magic Band, I think they all taught us a lesson of what could be done and what could be possible. And I think we need to look at our venues like that. But to Josh's answer about also about right-sizing the venue, about what is comfortable for everybody. So combining those two things, I think, um, I think those are here to stay. I would say, you know, masks and social distancing will probably go back to normal. But again, what's comfortable for everybody. So actually a socially distanced crowd may be something that sticks around because that's more people are comfortable that way. Who knows? Yeah, who knows there? Um, you know, they never they say ahead, not a good crisis go to waste, right? Well, we've been on the fence about going cashless, going to mobile tickets, getting rid of media, you know, digital uh, programs, now going digital. So I think all those things are here to stay. Our, our parking passes, tickets, going to be digital, cashless. You know, things that we want to do, we need, you know, now you've got a reason to do it. And now that you've done it, so, well, if everybody could figure out the mobile ticketing now, we, there's no reason we can't do this in perpetuity. Agreed. Yeah, there's uh so if anybody's interested in hearing more kind of about, you know, Drew mentioned that's Disney's my background. We do a podcast and we have a lot of ex former Disney guys come on and we've had some that have been Drew's been on, Josh has been on, Caesar, we got to get you on. Um but we've had some ex Disney guys come on that have talked about how they implemented that touchless aspect and more most importantly the data that comes from behind it and what that allows you to do from a guest experience perspective. Um Heather, if you wouldn't mind, put a link to the uh, to the podcast in the chat, maybe one from Michael Jungin or uh, Brian Betts could be interesting for people to check out if they want to hear more. Um, all right, guys, a couple more um, part-time staff that are working venues. Anything that you guys have done from their attitude from a comfortability standpoint? Has there been anything different that you've done with them? Josh, we talked about the check-in uh, ability and being able to do temperature check. Anything that comes to mind on that one on how you guys have worked or changed processes with part-time game day staff to make sure they feel comfortable. If nothing comes to mind, feel free to pass and we can go on to another question. But I mean, I touched on it a little earlier with, with our, our 15 minute testing, right. And, and, and having that as part of the, their experience. But for us, we sat down with all of our vendors as well uh, when we were reopening and we said, Hey, like talk to your people as well. What will, what will make them, what will help them uh, buy into the process? And and so I think for us, it was a pretty seamless uh, issue, but, but, you know, having, having the security that they are safe when they are in our venue was an important part. And we, we developed and, and shared with them our, our entire plan. So we were really transparent with it and that, that also helped. Pre-event, pre-event, it is everything, man. To, to have a good during event, you need to have a great pre-event. It, it's funny, right? We, we always talk about it with, with, with people that we work with where it's like nobody cared about how the sausage was made before. Now everybody cares. You can't just show up with it. Everybody needs to know the plan. Um, all right, a couple more questions here before we uh, get to the last question. Uh, let's see. Let me squeeze one. Um, what touch point do you find the most challenging or cost prohibitive when implementing COVID-19 safety features? What was, what was something like, you know, you were to put plexiglass in between every seat, obviously great for safety, but cost prohibitive. Um, what were some of those that you guys initially thought about, but then said, no, nah, it's too cost prohibitive. Well, plexiglass was one because the price of it was skyrocketing this summer and where we could mm -hmm. and couldn't put it. Um, we had to get a little creative, but 
you know, the cost, the one thing that was a big cost for us that we absorbed was the cost of the chairbacks. But you know what? It was worth every penny. We normally rent those out to our season ticket holders. We, we absorbed that cost and we laid them out in the seating pattern, absorbed it, but well worth it because without those chairbacks delineating where they could and couldn't sit, I don't know if it'll win as well. So a big cost, but worth it. Makes sense. Anybody else? Last question. All right. Last question. Uh, you've got uh, a tweet that you can send out to everybody meaning keep your answers brief. Uh, last last pieces of advice you guys would give to anybody that's trying to reopen their venues here shortly. And you can't just say, don't try it. Uh, people got to open, right? But uh, yeah, go ahead. Who's first? I, I kind of said mine. It was put put the time in the pre-event because that, that was kind of my answer too, which was think ahead, think 10 steps ahead. Close your eyes and imagine a customer going through the experience. What do they need to know so they have a great experience? Okay, that's probably 100 or 200 and whatever characters. So. Okay, you can thread your tweets now. It's all right. Yeah, you that's can. right. I just right. tweets. One of them, right. two. Yeah, that was like three, <laughs> I guess. And, and Drew, I, th I think that's something that we got we hit on earlier too. Is talking about what are what are the emotions of those fans as they're going through. What do they do when they score a goal? What do they do at the end of the race? Do they rush the fence or not, right? Caesar mentioned empathy. Like these people, folks are anxious. They're, they're more anxious than they've ever been because there's a pandemic out there as well. So it's not just going to an event and saying, where am I going to park and how am I going to get home through traffic? There's so it, Anxiety is so much more elevated. That's why we have to do the pre-work. We have to make them as comfortable as possible. Perfect. Uh, Caesar, why don't we go to you next? Uh, I don't know if I have a good tweet, but I'll say like, uh, and, and this is going to kind of piggyback a little bit off of what Drew just said, but it's really about trusting your people, right? And I mean, trusting not only your staff, but trusting your fans. Uh, that they're going to be invested and do the right thing. I think when we went initially went out, we we really wanted to educate them, and they 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 rewarded us with that trust of of being one of the first venues to open up. So I have to say, trust was a big piece of that puzzle for us, and and so kind of you know piggybacks a little bit off of the empathy, but just making sure that you know you you, you can trust people. Perfect, uh, Josh. What do you got? I would say be pragmatic about your solutions because, you know, what, there's an old saying, um, if it looks stupid but works, it's not stupid. And I think that sometimes we think that we have to spend money on – I love technology, and we all think we have to spend money on technology to make things better. But sometimes a simple solution is the easiest one. My yes. favorite old silly story, and I don't know if it's true, but, you know, NASA spent millions of dollars developing a pen that would write upside down in space, and the Russians just used a pencil. You know, so sometimes, <laughs> sometimes we don't have to invent new technology. Sometimes the pencil will work, right? So, so this is a time where you're going to get pitched with buying technology, this and that, and scanners and all these devices that can do thermal scanning. And let's get down to basics and be pragmatic about what your real solutions are because you don't need to, you know, sometimes a simpler answer is, is a better one. Beautiful. Uh, well, thank you guys for coming out. I, I really appreciate it. To everyone that joined us uh, in the chat and joined us watching, thank you guys so much for coming out. Um, if you want to hear more stuff like this, we're constantly sitting down with leaders in the industry to figure out trends, insights, experiments that they're running and whatnot to enhance customer experience and employee experience. Uh, and in our day jobs, uh, we, we work uh, 
with different sporting organizations on processes, efficiencies, all the not sexy stuff behind the scenes so that you can go out and deliver better fan experiences. Um, so if you're interested in learning more, uh, feel free to visit our website at engagementpartners.com. Drew, Caesar, Josh, this has been awesome. Appreciate you guys coming out. Uh, and we'll send a replay out to everybody as well uh, in case you want to forward it on to anybody that missed it. So until then, we'll see you guys later. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Marketing That Works podcast. To find out more and to get the show notes and everything that's going on, go to marketstreet.media. That's where I house this wonderful podcast on the Market Street Media Podcast Network. So thanks, check it out, and we'll see you on the next episode.